Let's turn to God's Word together. Deuteronomy 13 is our Old Testament reading this morning. Here in Deuteronomy 13, the Lord calls His people to faithfulness to Himself. He calls them in particular to fight idolatry, uh, to resist the temptation to be turning after idols like the nations around them, and to follow, serve, obey the Lord and the Lord only. So let's listen. Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is the Word of God. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend who is as your own soul secretly entices you saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear, and not again do such wickedness as this among you. If you hear someone in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, Corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock with the edge of the sword. And you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder for the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy, have compassion on you, and multiply you just as he spoke to your fathers." Because you've listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. And our New Testament text, Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30, where we see our Lord Jesus um, 
really echoing that same sentiment from Deuteronomy uh, that it, you cannot have other gods, you cannot hold fast to idols and the Lord at the same time. Uh, you're either following Christ with all your heart or you're not following him at all. Matthew 19, 13 through 30. Let's hear God's word. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask him to bless it to us. Father, your word is like a sword, sharp and double-edged, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, to our very, very heart. We pray that you would come and by your spirit wield your word in our hearts to pierce us and bring conviction and to work faith and to fix our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ that we would depend on no other and seek salvation in no other but him. pray this in his precious name. Amen. What does it cost to be a Christian? What's the entrance fee? to the kingdom of heaven. In one sense, you say, well, it costs nothing to be a Christian. There's no entrance fee. Well, Christ paid the entrance fee, and it's 
The doors are thrown wide open to, to us. Come, all who, who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, Jesus says. Come, the, uh, Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the kingdom of heaven, the salvation that God holds out to us in Christ, is free. It's wonderfully free. It's gracious gift of God. You receive Christ, and by faith, He's yours, and all that is His is yours. But at the same time, the kingdom of heaven is very costly. It costs you nothing to, uh, to, to, to enter it, but it costs you everything to receive it. Um, to receive that gift. Calvin says, you can't receive Christ's righteousness until you abandon your own. And similarly, we could say you can't receive the, the, the kingdom of God if you're grasping onto other treasures and other things and other idols. You cannot follow Christ and at the same time follow after your own heart's way. And so we see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and come after me. Um, surrender everything. Surrender yourself to Christ completely in order to take him. It's not an entrance fee. It doesn't, you know, you're not buying your way in by your sacrifice. But if you're coming to Christ, it will cost. It will cost everything. And it's, it's a big cost. It's a lot that we're called to give up. Everything. There's a, there's a hymn an old hymn that puts it like this, If I find him, if I follow, what his promise here? Many a sorrow, many a labor, many a tear. And loved ones, I know many of you are familiar with that cost. You, you know the cost, some, something of it, of following Christ and the self-sacrifice that it's called for, for you. It's a high cost. Jesus tells us it's a high cost. But he also tells us, he promises us that the reward that he gives in his kingdom is far, far, far better. These, these three things are all happening in this text in Matthew 19, 13 through 30. Um, the kingdom of heaven, a gift of free grace that costs us everything that is worth everything. And in this text, this is what Jesus is calling us to. Embrace the cost. Receive his kingdom by grace. Embrace the cost knowing it's worth it. A hundred times over that it's, that it's worth it. Three points, three points this morning as we work through the text. Uh, number one, uh, Christ's kingdom is a gift you cannot earn. Christ's kingdom is a gift that you cannot earn. Earn. As I've been studying Matthew and as we've been working through it together, I've continued to be, uh, to be amazed by the, by the structure, the, the, the very thoughtful, careful way the gospel is laid out. And one story follows on after another story. Um, it reveals profound things when, when you start to look at these things. Last week, we were in the first section of, of Matthew 19, verses 1, 1 through 12, and we saw the Pharisees, the religious elite, coming to Jesus with questions to test him. Um, and, and if anyone in Israel should have a, have a free pass to being part of his kingdom, they should be the ones who have it, right? They're, they're the religious guys. They're the ones who know the word of God. They're the ones who claim to follow it uh, uh, so, so carefully. But they come with all the wrong questions, and they come for the wrong reasons to Christ. 
Christ sees their pride. He exposes their pride. He skewers their hypocrisy. He challenges them to faith. And they walk away. And then in the very next section, who comes to Jesus? Children. Little children. Right? What a contrast. The Pharisees, who should get it, who should know, but who don't. And then the little children. What, what place do they have in Christ's kingdom? What do they know? What do they bring to Christ? They're not brought to Christ to give Him anything or to teach Him anything. They're just brought to receive from Him. They're, they're, the, they're the picture of being, of being poor in spirit as their parents bring their kids to Jesus to have Him bless them. The children are the picture of neediness. Poor in spirit. The disciples rebuke them. For this, they rebuke their parents for bringing them. Why are you bringing the kids to see Jesus? Jesus is busy. Jesus is important. Jesus has a lot going on, right? That when you have a conference and you've got the big plenary speaker, the, the big name guy speaking at the, the important conference, he's not going to skip his message to go do the nursery, right? He's got more important things to do. But Jesus says, no, no, let the little children come. Why? Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven, he says. He welcomes them. He loves them. Lays his hands on them. He prays for them because he loves them. He cares. Genuinely cares about these little children. Um, Maybe they were fussy. Maybe they were jumping around rambunctiously. But he cared for them. He loved them. Um, But he does this also to show his disciples and to to show us, brothers and sisters, that they are the, embody, the embodiment of the kind of person who belongs in Jesus' kingdom. It's the childlike. Uh, childlike in the sense of, of, of neediness and dependency and, and weakness and insignificance. Children have nothing to offer Jesus here. And loved ones, as we come to Christ, that's the only way to come to Christ. With nothing to offer. Lord, save me. I need you. I have nothing to give you. Just, I need you to save me. That, that, that's, that's the way they come. Not like the proud-hearted Pharisees coming to test him, teach him a lesson, expose him, trip him up. But like these little children. Loved ones, this, this is what it means to, to belong in his kingdom and to be part of, of his kingdom. It's to have this childlike knowledge of your absolute neediness for God to save you. Without that, the kingdom of heaven is closed to you. Without that need for Christ, that absolute need for him. And so we get that picture of the Pharisees and the little children are brought, showing this, this neediness and the being poor in spirit as the requirement for entrance to the kingdom. And then we see this other contrast brought in again right after it with the rich young ruler. Again, what could be more different from these, from these little helpless, needy children than this rich, young ruler who seems to have it all together? And he comes up to Jesus, and, uh, and, and we see his self-righteousness as he comes to Christ. He doesn't notice he doesn't come. The, the, the children are brought to Jesus to receive grace and blessing, not to give him something. But the rich, young ruler comes to Jesus to get some marching orders, so that he can go save himself. He says to Jesus, Good teacher, what good must I do to possess eternal life? What does he, what, what does he want? What, what's this eternal life? 
that he's asking for. We should, we should make sure we understand that before we move on. We need to see his question about eternal life um, as, as, as more than just asking for uh, unending life. Um, he doesn't just want to live forever and ever, but he wants, he wants fullness of life, wholeness of life. What he wants is nothing less than the fullness of God's blessing. Keep, keep the whole Bible picture in view. If you go all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the reward for obedience that is held out to them is eternal life in the presence of God. Holiness and happiness in God's presence forever, symbolized by the, by the tree of life. Adam and Eve, of course, sin. They're exiled from the garden, and God places uh, an angel there at the gate of the garden, guarding the way back to the tree of life, symbolizing that sinners cannot have eternal life in God until, until God himself makes a way. And this is why Jesus comes to open the way up to eternal life again and to secure it for us. But the rich young ruler then, he he sees Jesus not as the Savior who came to win for him and give to him graciously eternal life, but he sees Jesus only as a teacher to tell him how he can save himself. He has has the pride and and the audacity to think he he can march right up on the basis of his own righteousness and do what no other person has ever been able to do and demand eternal life from God on the basis of his own good works. He's his own Messiah and his own Savior. Jesus responds with just stunning insight to this young man uh, and into his heart. He draws him out. Um, he He doesn't just immediately... Um, uh, correct him, but, but he draws out his, his sin here. Uh, Calvin compares him to a doctor who, who, who puts his finger right on the spot where it hurts. Have you ever broken a bone or something and the doctor says, he's kind of feeling your arm. Is, is, that, is that where it hurts? And, and there it is, right? And you feel the pain suddenly. And, you're, uh, and yes, that's exactly the, the, the point where it's broken. And that's what Jesus is doing with this young man. He's, he's drawing out his sin. He's putting his finger right on the, right on the point where he, is, uh, where he is in such great need and sin. He responds to this young man. And he says to him, no one is good but God alone. That's a big hint, right? No one is good but God alone. Right? This young man is, is saying, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, no, no one's good but God alone. Um, in other words, you're not good. But he keeps he draws him he draws him out and he goes on and and he uh, he says, well, let's say this: keep the commandments. That's how you inherit, inherit eternal life. If you perfectly obey God's law, you will inherit eternal life. Um, the young man says, well, well, which which ones? Uh, Jesus responds with. The sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and then fifth of the Ten Commandments in that order, followed by a summary commandment to love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19.18. And the young man got it. Done. We've done all those, Jesus. Uh, Every one of them. Uh, I've loved my neighbor as myself since I was a boy. Um, uh, Remarkable guy here. Um, uh, He knows these commandments. That's obvious, right? Right. Yes, 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 Jesus. 
what else? What, what, what else do I need? I, I've done that. What, what, what else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? There's got to be a few extra good things I can do to really earn etern- eternal life. Um, but Jesus then gives him one more, uh, the bombshell uh, that he's been holding back. Um, he reminds him now of the Tenth Commandment, which is also tied into the First Commandment. The Tenth Commandment zeroes in on our hearts. You shall not covet. You shall not desire what it is not your place to desire. You shall not have another god, another idol in place of, of God himself. Jesus gets right to his greed. as if you'd be perfect. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's tearing the mask off. This, this, this man's self-righteous mask that he's wearing. Jesus is taking it off and he's showing himself. Look, look who you are. He's holding up a mirror to him um, and saying, look, look how sinful you actually are. Um, he's showing this man that he's self-righteous, that all those supposed good things he's done are just filthy rags in God's sight. Uh, all of it has been done with a heart that does not love God, but loves himself and loves his money and loves his stuff. Not the Lord. And, 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 uh, and he's coming to Jesus, trying to pay the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven with his own good works. And Jesus is saying, you don't have any good works. No one is good but God alone. You cannot earn eternal life. You are not the Savior. You are not the second Adam, the mediator, who has come to do that. You're a sinner, just like everyone else. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But come follow me. I'll be your Savior. Give up on your righteousness. Trust mine. Follow me. But this young man, this rich young man, won't accept this. He walks away sorrowful for it says he has great possessions. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he, and he, makes, he makes this point to them um, as, as, they watch, as they watch this young man walk away. He says it, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Camel, the biggest animal in Palestine. The needle, smallest aperture in Palestine at the time, basically. Right. It'd be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a sewing needle than for someone to get into the kingdom of heaven by their own righteousness. In that, in that day, when you saw a rich person, you thought, oh, they're blessed by God. Um, not, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, they're, they're corrupt. Right? They're blessed by God. He, he's given them these good things. And so for Jesus to say, for a rich person to enter the kingdom is impossible. How much more impossible for anyone? The disciples say, who then can be saved? And as Jesus answers their question, the text tells us he looked at them. And the, the Greek word for that, it really means he looked very intently at them. He fixed his eyes on them and said, with men, it is impossible. But with God, with God, it is possible. Um, with, with, with man, it is impossible. You cannot be your own savior. Um, if you had a million years to work on yourself and to try to improve yourself and, and, and to shape yourself up into the kind of person who would be welcomed into the holy presence of God, you could not do it. 
you'd be a million more years in debt than you are now from your sin. It is impossible. But with God, with God it is possible. Loved ones, the only way to come to Jesus then is not like the rich young ruler, but like the children, right? Not coming, trying to pay the entrance fee to the kingdom. Purchase salvation, eternal life by your own works, but coming to Jesus, recognizing you're poor in spirit. You don't have any purchasing power with him. You need his grace and his righteousness. You are a debtor to him. To to throw yourself on his mercy and his grace. There's a wonderful, wonderful line in that hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, that we love so well. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I claim. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. That is childlike faith, loved ones. And that is the only way you enter the kingdom of heaven. However, sometimes we hear that, and, uh, and we think it means Christ's kingdom, then, doesn't cost us anything. It's a wonderful news. Free grace of God. Salvation through Christ, not me. Through his righteousness, not mine. And, and we receive that free gift of God for us. But we need to remember that to receive that costs us everything that we have. And this is the second thing we see here in the text. Our second point, Christ's kingdom costs you everything you have to receive. Um, As Jesus is confronting the rich young man in this passage, he's not only exposing his bankrupt uh, bankrupt self-righteousness, but he's also showing the demands of being part of, of, of of his kingdom. Um, He's showing showing us that that if Jesus is going to be our Savior, we have to give up everything to follow him. Look with me again, if you have it open, at verse 21. Jesus puts the finest possible point on his challenge to this young man. He says, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus puts the very pointed question, challenge right to him, money or me, possessions, or the Messiah. And uh, the rich young man does not want Christ. He would rather have his money, his possessions, his property. Dia Carson writes this, he leaves. Because if a choice has to be made between money and Jesus, money wins. He walks away from Jesus, walks away from the kingdom of heaven, walks away from eternal life, walks away from the only savior of his sins for money. Um, brothers and sisters, there's a, there's, a, there's a warning that you and I so need to take to heart as we hear Jesus say these things here. J.C. Ryle puts it so well. He says, one idol cherished in the heart may ruin a soul forever. We may not tolerate any idols, any rivals in our heart to Christ. And one of the most seductive of all idols is money. Money gives us so much, right? It gives us security. It it, it gives us possessions. It gives us the things that we want and that we need, right? It's how we provide for ourselves. It it, it seems to to be such a powerful and wonderful thing to, to, to make us happy, Now, God gives us good things. And we need to work and earn money and provide for ourselves. And it's good to enjoy the good gifts that he gives us. 
But, but the security and the satisfaction are not found in money and in the possessions it buys for us, the, the things it promises us, but the security and, and happiness and satisfaction are found in the Lord and only in the Lord. So guard your heart from the love of money. First, First Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all evil. And, and we see in Scripture many examples of, of this very thing. Judas... Ananias and Sapphira, the rich young man here. Does this mean that we should take Jesus' command to sell our possessions and give to the poor as something he's saying to us? Is Jesus telling your blanket statement for everybody? Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow Jesus. Before we answer that question, test your heart, okay, uh, with me. Um, what are you hoping the answer is? What do you want the answer to be to that question? Well, gee, I hope not. I hope Jesus isn't asking me to do that. Is that maybe not the answer in your own heart, loved ones? Um, when you hear that, that it's not the command necessarily for all of us to sell all we have, do you breathe a sigh of relief? I can relax. I don't have to give up everything for Christ. Um... Does your heart protest if that is the command? Jesus is not telling us to give away all our possessions, but don't think that gives you some insulation against the radical nature of his call on you because he asks nothing less of every disciple, everyone who would follow him, whether he calls you to literally go and sell all your possessions and give the money away and follow him, or whether he doesn't, is beside the point. Because he does call you to absolutely give yourself and all you have and all you are to him. Every dollar in your bank account to belong to him, whether you use it in a particular way or, or give it away in a particular way. It's his, and he has control over it. Your, your relationships... Uh, your possessions, all that you have and all that you are is for Him. He wants all of you and all of your heart, brothers and sisters. And to follow Him means giving it all to Him. John Calvin's motto was, Lord, I offer my heart to you promptly and sincerely. I offer my heart to you, my heart, all my heart to you, Lord, promptly, quickly, and, and sincerely, genuinely. Have my whole heart, Lord. That is what it means to follow Christ. And, and if we're going to be part of his kingdom and receive his kingdom, that's what's asked of us. Loved ones, is Jesus on the throne in your heart? Are there other loves pushing him out of the way in your heart? Or is he your only God. When it comes down to it, when the choice is between your idols and Jesus, who wins? You might say, well, to be honest, the idols win. Every time. Um, I want something from Jesus. Eternal life sounds nice. But Jesus himself, giving up everything to follow him, um, I, want, I don't know. Um, if you push me to choose, I'm choosing the idols. Loved ones, if that's where your heart is at, um, 
you are in real spiritual danger. One idol cherished on the throne of the heart uh, is a deadly and, and dangerous thing. Uh, don't, don't walk away from the word of God here feeling sorrowful like the young man, uh, but holding on to the idols. It is not worth it. Cry out to Jesus for a new heart. Lord, here, here is my heart. It is sinful and idolatrous, and I know it. Please forgive me and please change me. Cry out to him for that. He will answer that prayer. Uh, the, the text tells us that he, looking at the young man, he, he loved him in another of the gospel accounts. Um, Jesus wants your heart and he wants you to follow him. And if you cry out to him that he would give you a new heart that loves him and him alone, he will answer that. You, you might say, well, it is my desire to love him um, uh, with all my heart and to completely surrender my life to him. But even on my best days, my heart's still mixed. Uh, there, there, there are still different affections and different loves vying for, for first place. And, and, and uh, uh, I, don't, I don't always follow and love him the way I know I ought to. Brothers and sisters, if, if that's your heart, uh, that, then also bring, bring that to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him for forgiveness for that as well and pray that he would, as the Psalms say, unite my heart to fear your name, to give you a whole heart, not, not divided, pulled in half, this idol and this one, but a whole heart united in the love and the fear of the Lord. And, and pray that Pray that God would make Christ so sweet to you that all those other idols would lose their luster. Uh, John Calvin again writes this. He says, the, the same thing that happened to the rich young ruler will happen to us, that is, going away sorrowful, unless the sweetness of the grace of Christ renders all the allurements of the flesh distasteful to us. You need a new love to drive out the old love. You need to know the glories and goodness of Christ and how much it is worth it to forsake all and take Him. And that's exactly where our Lord points us to next. And the final point here. Um, Christ's kingdom is worth the cost a hundred times over. Christ's kingdom is worth the cost a hundred times over. Peter speaks up, uh, speaking for all the disciples, and he says to Jesus, Behold, we ourselves have left everything and followed you. What shall we have? Um, he knows the cost of following Jesus. He, he, he left his, his father. He left his, his full-time career as a fisherman to do this. Um, he's embracing the cost. Hostilities mounting. He sees that. People are... Uh, beginning to resist Jesus, and he's sticking with it. Peter's sticking with it, so he's seeing that cost. He doesn't know it yet, but the cost is going to increase for him. Uh, he's going to be persecuted. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified upside down for the sake of Christ. It's a big cost for Peter to do this. Um, and so he wants to know, is it, is it worth it? What's the reward for those who, who do give up everything and follow you, Lord? Um, we need to know the answer to that question, don't we? Um, we might think it sounds mercenary. That Peter, you shouldn't ask that question, right? Just it, It's the right thing to do to follow Jesus. Just go ahead and follow him. Don't say, what's in it for me? But, loved ones, Jesus does not correct his question. Whether or not his question is perfect is a little beside the point because Jesus doesn't correct the question. Jesus treats it as a good question. He says, here, let me, let me tell you what the reward is for those who follow 
me. He doesn't want us to just give up everything and follow him because it's the right thing to do. He wants us to give up everything to follow him because it's what our heart longs for. And we see that to have Christ and the reward that is ours in Christ is better than anything that we gladly give up everything to have him. Um, Jesus promises two things to his disciples here. First, verse 28, he promises them that when he comes in glory to judge the world, they will sit on 12 thrones and rule with him. Jesus literally is promising a, a new creation, a new genesis, this regeneration that's spoken of in the text. This new creation is going to happen. God's going to establish a new world. And, 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 and he's going to renew God's people, this spiritual Israel from every tribe and tongue and nation. And over this new creation, this renewed people of God uh, in this new world, God will have his 12 apostles also ruling with him. Jesus tells them they will, they will, they will rule with him over this, this new Israel. Um, the, this promise is, is unique to the 12 of them. Uh, Judah is excluded. Um, this promise is for them that they will do this in a particular unique way. But there's also a promise that's very similar to this that is for every disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, for every Christian. Daniel 7, 27 promises that God's saints, all God's saints, will possess the kingdom. It says this, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's said to all believers. If you endure, you will reign with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says something very similar. Do you not know we will judge angels? All the saints of God. All the people of God. Revelation 26 says that all the saints will reign with him for a thousand years years. Brothers and sisters, what a glorious promise. We are kings in God's eyes, in his kingdom. Not equal with Christ, not by any means, but we're in Christ. And in Christ, we will be reigning over this whole new creation that God is going to establish. It's a position of greater honor and privilege than the highest emperor of this world has ever enjoyed. What could be higher? What, 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 what president, what king could compare with the lowest and least of Christ's kingdom who is going to reign with Christ in glory forever and ever and ever? And the second, Jesus gives this promise. In verse 29, he says that all those who follow him and, and give up everything to, to come after him will receive an inheritance that is a hundredfold and have eternal life. That whatever you give up, he will repay a hundred times over. That if you have to leave family for Christ, he will repay richly more than you ever gave up. That if you have to uh, leave a home for Christ, he will give you so much more, such a better home. A uh, hundred times better, not just barely better. Jesus is promising a rich inheritance. He's promising eternal life in his kingdom, in the presence of God, not just life that goes on and on, but that life of being in God's presence forever. Loved ones, what will that be like? What, 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 what will this reward from Christ be like in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth? 
You can, you can think of it a little bit. Well, think, think of your best day on earth. Think, think of your sweetest and best moments. The, the happiest moments of your life. I, I, I think, uh, think of my, my wedding day. I uh, think of the day when my, each of my children's been born. The, the joy of those moments is like a candle in comparison with the sunshine of high noon of happiness that will be ours in the kingdom of heaven. The best pleasures of this life are pennies in comparison with the trillions that God is going to give us of His goodness and His grace and His love. God Himself is going to give us Himself with all that He is and all His eternity and infinity to satisfy us forever and ever. Psalm 1611 describes this like this. It says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Infinite, indescribable happiness in the presence of God forever and ever. The Apostle John would later have a vision of this inheritance. And he describes it for us in Revelation 21. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our inheritance in Christ, and there is nothing that can compare with that. This is why Paul says that our, 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 our current afflictions are light and they're momentary and they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we began, I quoted a hymn that asked what it costs to follow Christ. Uh, if I find him, if I follow what his promise here, many a sorrow, many a labor, many a tear. The final verse of the hymn answers the question. It says this, Finding, following, keeping, struggling, is he sure to bless? Saints, apostles, prophets, martyrs, answer, yes. Is it worth it? Yes, a hundred times over, a thousand times over. Nothing can compare with the sweetness of the grace of Christ and what is ours in Christ. Loved ones, do not labor for what does not satisfy. Don't live for what fades. Live for the solid, lasting treasure of the kingdom of heaven that is ours in Christ. Give up everything you have to gain everything Christ has and receive Him by grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us in our Lord Jesus Christ and all that is ours in him. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins and draw us close to Christ and give us a hunger for you. We pray this in his name. Amen.